from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program presenting biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Sandy Simmons. Sandy is a professional musician who has a CD called Prayers that you can find on iTunes. I started the interview by asking Sandy where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in Los Angeles, California, in city L.A. Um, it was pretty normal. We had real neighborhoods in my original, the first home that I remember where my father lives now. He uh, had a little house on the on the corner, second house from the corner, and there was, oh, geez, at least eight families on that block that we all played together. That's really different than the way my kid grew up. There was a lot of kids, a lot of families. We used to do a lot of things together. It was pretty normal. What was religious life like growing up? We went to church on Sundays. My earliest remembrance is going to spend the summer at my grandmother's house when I was six. And uh, we went to church every day. My mom says we were only there for a month. I think we were there for maybe a month, maybe three weeks. It seems like we were there for three months. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we were there all summer, but she said we were only there for a month. We went to we went to church every day. We went to a Baptist church. That's where I got most of my understanding of of Jesus during that time. That's what I remember is um, falling in love with Jesus uh, when I went to spend the summer with my grandma. So when you were home, it wasn't so out there. Well, it wasn't so. Rigid. We did go to church on Sundays. I think we went to church every Sunday. I remember my grandmother had come to live with us when my mom had her second child, and she stayed until she had her third one. Seems like we went to church every Sunday, and we went to a Methodist church on the corner. It's about three blocks down from our house. I remember going there, and um, oh, one, <laughs> one funny story. The minister, when he's giving his sermon... They, have, they would have communion, like on Communion Sunday. And this particular Sunday, it's uh, Communion Sunday. And the minister is giving a sermon. He says, everyone who loves Jesus, raise their hand. So we all raised our hand. He said, everyone who loves Jesus, come down to the altar. And so I got up from my seat, and I grabbed my little brother's hand, and we walked down to the altar. And uh, we were kneeling at the altar with all these other people. And, uh, you know, this little rail that goes across... We were kneeling there, and um, they bring a little tray of crackers, and uh, we take a little cracker, and we eat that. And then another person comes by with a tray of um, little one-ounce glasses of juice to signify the wine. We drink that, and then he says, so now you're a member of our church. So I was being patient, and I thought they were going to bring the you know, the, the food back, the, the crackers and the grape juice. <laughs> and I raised my hand, 
And the minister looked down at me. I'm six, you know, I'm a little girl. I'm like, you know, five or six years old. He says, yes, young lady, what can I do for you? And I said, can I have some more, please? <laughs> and the whole church just hollered. <laughs> oh, really? That's great. That's great. They, they all laughed. They said, <laughs> he said, no, baby. He said, you, you received Jesus and, and that's, that's good enough. And I said, okay. <laughs> I wasn't even embarrassed. They just, everybody just thought that was hilarious. Receiving Christ was very tasty. It's great that everybody had a sense of humor about it and weren't all hung up about protocol. Oh, no, they were. They thought that was hilarious. They talked about that for weeks. <laughs> so well, what were your interests growing up, Sandy? I just liked going to school, and I liked playing the piano. I used to get piano lessons from the lady next door, Mrs. Triplett. Elementary school was pretty normal. Junior high school... I got more into singing in the Glee Club. We used to have a talent show every Friday. I think um, one of the significant things that happened when I was in school, in the fourth grade, I remember being in an assembly in the cafeteria, in the school cafeteria, and we were watching John F. Kennedy had become president, and we were all very excited about that. For some reason, there was a lot of good things that were happening for people in our community. We were watching the motorcade in um, Texas, and we literally saw him get shot. Oh, my God. So We saw the whole thing on wow. TV. Oh, my and God. And that really affected me because everybody loved him. Everybody that I knew loved him, and that was pretty traumatic. So we were all pretty affected by that. So that was a real significant thing I remember about school. I know that we used to have a wood shop and... We would make little boats out of wood and little toys and things. They showed you how to use a saw and a hammer and nails and stuff. I don't know if they still do that anymore. Well, that's, actually, um, I'm kind of surprised that you're talking about that back in the 60s, right? Yeah. Yeah, that they even uh, had girls doing woodshop because I remember... Well, it wasn't really called woodshop because this was in the fourth grade. Yeah. It was something everybody did. Everybody did it. Yeah. Everybody did it in class. It was, okay. it was not a special location we went to. They brought the wood in the class. We learned how to do it, and we had little sawhorses outside the, the bungalows, and yeah. everybody did it. In in high school, they had wood shop and metal shop and all that, but I didn't do those. But that that was pretty cool. It was pretty normal. We used to you have, used to have to fight. <laughs> <laughs> had to learn how to I'm fight. Always, yeah, there was a, there was. I used to get chased by this this big girl. She chased me home every day and tried to beat me up. So I would run home every day. And then there was this other girl that just didn't like me. So she would pick on me every day and she just socked me. And I just would walk away. I had this really weird thing about turning the other cheek. It was I say it's weird because that's one of the things I just remembered about my about Jesus that he said that he turned the other cheek. So I really did that. And it was really stupid <laughs> because they just would take advantage of me until I turned around and socked them back. And then that was that. Right. I had to learn to fight back. But it was just unjust. You know, people just take a dislike of you for no particular reason. I mean, who, what, what's not to like about an eight-year-old? I, rem- I remember exactly the same situation when I was growing up. This kid just 
wanted to pick on me, and I I tried the same thing. I said, uh, I'm just going to let this guy ignore him, whatever, and it just wasn't going to happen. And finally, I decided to confront him, and and I was a wrestler, not a not a puncher, and he was a puncher, and he creamed me, but it finally ended the situation, and he no longer, even though he beat the crap out of me, at least it was over. He wasn't going to bug me anymore, you know? Yeah. So I, I, I totally relate to what you're saying. There's, I mean, some, my, and my kid, we had to teach her in elementary school how to fight back because she was petite. She didn't have much problems with the girls, but the boys were terrorizers. So we had to teach her how to do that. This little guy was going around kicking all the girls. She came home with this big gash on her shin. One day, said, Where'd you, what happened? Did you fall down? She said, no. So-and-so kicked me. He kicked you? She says, yeah, he's kicking everybody. And so my husband gave her a lesson on kicking. He's a pizza martial artist, and he, he showed her how to kick. He says, next time he does this, you kick her right there. And so next week, she came home, and how's school? School's okay. So-and-so kicked me. What did you do? I kicked him back. What did he do? He cried. What did the playground monitor do? They benched him, and he had to go to the principal's office. Because he was attacking people. And he didn't ta- attack anybody else after that. Nobody. He, he left everybody alone. He was humiliated. <laughs> well, you know, it's an interesting dilemma, Sandy, because in one case, you're wanting to turn the other cheek, but if that's not really resolving the problem, what's the right principle to follow in this case? And and it's almost like by your husband teaching your daughter how to defend herself, he actually ended up not being a terror to the community of yeah. of kids. So yeah, in some ways, she was I, like a, a defender of the community of kids. She was. So it's, it's really, it really is a difficult principle to come to grips with, I think. Well, I think it depends on how you accept the principle. Muhammad says that, I can't remember the exact quote, but I know that there's something about protecting the community and um, about trusting people. You know, he says, trust your neighbor, but tie your camel. I think in other faiths, there are more clear principles about defending yourself. I think that the turn the other cheek part was just the part that I heard. I really heard that. And when I, I, I think that whole period of staying with my grandmother that summer really molded my spiritual life because when I came back, I was, I was in love with Jesus. You know, I loved going to Sunday school. They had those felt boards where they cut out, had little cutouts of the characters and they would tell stories with the, and place the characters on the board. We had a lesson about when they crucified Jesus, the whole process of him going to trial and then questioning him. And then the king put the vote to the people and they voted to have him killed. And that just tore me up. I was so upset. And then they, we, they, then she talked about the crucifixion and how they nailed him to the cross, and you know everybody was weeping. And 
I was heartbroken. And I remember going home that night when I said my prayers, I prayed to God that if, when Jesus comes back that I would be able to recognize him because they also taught us that he died and he rose again and that he was going to return one day. And everybody was waiting for his return. And so I just prayed that, I, that he would come back while I was alive, that I would be, get to see him, and then I could become a disciple. If girls couldn't be disciples, then if I could at least be somebody that gave him a pillow for his head or made his life comfortable in some way, you know, like Mary did, Mary Magdalene. I didn't realize how deep that was until I started seeking. I started being interested in, when I was in college, I started being interested in in spirituality and people's paths. I would go to, uh, there was a some kind of Buddhist organization next door to the dorm I lived in. This is right out of high school. And they would do that om for hours. <laughs> it mm. seems like they would do it for like three or four hours on, on Sundays or Saturdays. I don't remember which day. I found that interesting. And at first it was annoying. And then it just didn't bother me. You know, I just used it as an opportunity to pray or just to meditate or just to kind of not think about things. I would just listen to the sound. And then I went to an, another one of the, my classmates was had become Nishirin Shoshu, Buddhist. They're the ones who do Nam-myohan Renge-kyo. I went to one of her meetings. I found that interesting. And then later, after high school, I was living in an apartment by myself Things weren't going so great, and I was praying to Jesus, and I remember crying myself to sleep. I prayed to be able to know what I was supposed to do, who am I, what am I, why am I here, what is the point, show me some direction, I don't care where it is or who it is or where I have to go to find it, and I fell asleep. And I remember music in my head when I fell asleep. It was that song, um, You're Just Too Good to Be True. You're just too good to be true. Can't take my eyes off of you. That song. And it was this full arrangement in my head. I never could hear full arrangements. I could hear melodies or two or three harmonies, but I never heard all of the strings and the horns and all of that. And I heard this beautiful music in my head, and I went to sleep. And then a few days later, i say a week later, I discovered uh, the Baha'i Faith for the first time. And how did, how did you discover it? I was going on a date, and uh, the guy picked me up. He said, we're going to go out and hear some music. So I'm all dressed up. And he comes to pick me up, and he's, like, really casual. And I'm like, so where are we going? And he said, it's a surprise, but it's going to be really good. So we <laughs> go over his friend's house. And into the backyard, into behind the garage, in this little door, there's this wonderful music coming out of this little room. And it's a bass player and piano player and a drummer from Sergio Mendez's band. They had been on the road and they were in the backyard. They were in the back room jamming. And one and the piano player was John Barnes. And that was my first time meeting John. And he had a button in his hat that said Baha'i. I am very, very, very susceptible to music. Especially back then, I was very sensitive to just tones and certain things about music. 
I used to sing in high school. I was in a group called Quiet Fire. That's where, I guess, You're Just Too Good to Be True came into play because we used to sing that song in four-part harmonies. And here I was in this back room with this incredible sound and um, this name, Baha'i, which was unfamiliar to me. So after we were leaving, I asked John what was Baha'i, and he said it's religion. And I thought I was going to choke. <laughs> I said, a religion? He said, yeah. I said, like, like Brene Briss. And he said, no, it's a new religion. And I took another gasp. I said, oh, well, you must tell me about this religion. So, okay, I'll tell you. So I didn't hear from him for a while. This was a real crossroads in my life where I didn't know what I was going to do from one day to the next. So I decided I was going to try to really be a singer. And I started thinking of songs that I would like to record to showcase my voice. And I thought I would call John Barnes to ask him if he would help me, and he said. So I called him up. I said, I, I need you to help me with some demos. And I would like for you to tell me to, about the Baha'i faith. I said, oh, okay. So he came over one day. I didn't have much furniture. I had these big pillows that we sat on, like for couches. So we were talking about music and stuff, and briefly talking about music, and he brought a stack of books with him. I reiterated, I really want to know about the Baha'i Faith. I've been thinking about it nonstop since we talked about it. I don't know what it is, but it's something attractive about it. And so he told me about the faith. He told me that there, the promised one has come, that his name is Baha'u'llah, that his claim is that he is the return of all of the messengers, that he's the fifth Buddha, the twelfth Imam, he's the return of the Spirit of Christ. And when he said he was the, he was the return of Jesus, I just fell over. <laughs> It was like a, like like somebody just socked me in my chest, and I just fell over backwards. Sandy, what was your reaction? Were you like, yeah, right? Shock and just shock, like this is too good to be true. Oh, just I like the shock. song, just like the song. <laughs> yeah, this. It wasn't like this couldn't be, but it was like, wow, wow, could this be possible? So you. I was looking at feeling at this point. <laughs> you were open to the idea. Yes. I, my heart was wide open and it just went right in. I was so shocked that that was what he was going to tell me. Mm-hmm. That that was possible and that my possibly that my most hidden secret dream, wish, desire was now being presented me, that Jesus had returned, and that maybe I could get the message. Maybe I could be a disciple. That's what went through me in that burst of energy that hit me in my chest and knocked me over. So what happened after that? He told me about the teachings, and he told me about Baha'u'llah, and he told me about his life, his suffering. Baha'u'llah's life and suffering? Yes that he suffered to be able to bring us this message. He told me about the Baha'is in Iran, 
that people are still being being martyred for their belief that the promised one has come and that, you know, the powers that be are not willing to give up their power for a better situation for mankind. So they continue to persecute people. Just the teachings of, you know, the oneness of mankind and there's one religion and there's one God, that just really amazed me. I said, that makes sense. That makes so much sense. And the other thing that I realized, too, is that in that moment I started, you know, you asked me earlier about my early religious beliefs or my life. I remember when he said imam, my only relationship with Islam up to that point had been my friend who I grew up with across the street from me became a Muslim right after high school. She had come home from school, from college, and we were both home at the same time for a little while, and I came over to visit her, and she said, well, I have to say my prayers now. And she informed me that she was now praying five times a day, which that just blew me away. (laughs) I asked her if I could watch her pray, and she let me watch her pray and say her prayers. She let me look at her Quran, which she had on a beautiful pedestal, it was a big, huge book, looked like a, one of those big encyclopedias. And I just briefly looked at the book. It just felt good. And I looked at the book, and I wish I could remember the passages that I read. But I said to myself, this sounds like God. This must be a God book, like the Bible. It read just like the Bible, sounded like the Bible. A little bit different words, but... It just felt real familiar. And I watched this woman pray. The postures, the raising of the hands and the bending over and to your, touching your knees and the putting your face on the ground and prostrating yourself. And I had never seen anybody pray like that. I was totally impressed of the submission that my friend that I've known all these years is now submitting her, trying to submit her will to God. I was impressed. All of that started coming back to me during my investigational process. I um, was invited to come to his home and look at his books and uh, pick out what I wanted. So I picked out two books. It was called the look. It was a tiny book called "Great Themes of Life" by Eric Bowles. It was a book about a Unitarian minister who had become a Baha'i, and these are some of his sermons that he gave to uh, parishioners of his contemporaries. When he became a Baha'i, all his friends, he was a real like a bishop or something. He was really high up in the organizational process of the, the church. I think it was he was Australian. And all of his friends, ministers, asked him to come to their churches and tell them about this new religion. So I read this little book about that he had written, and then I chose gleanings of the writings of Baha'u'llah. I chose gleanings because I just kind of wanted to read something that was Baha'u'llah's word. You know, in the Bible, uh, there's a red-letter edition of the Bible that has the words of Christ. And if you took all of those words out of the Bible and just had those, it would be a really tiny little book. Because all the rest of the words are what the disciples said he said. Matthew, John, they all have 
their version of what he said. But it's not a whole lot when you look at the whole size of the book. So I was really interested in what Baha'u'llah said. I was interested in understanding his authority. What authority did he have? I just had some innate feeling that I would know if this was true or not. But my heart was throbbing. And with every word, I would read of Baha'u'llah's words. The first section of gleanings, the first five or six pages, I just read them straight through. And I was on, my heart was going to burst. So that's the book that I took. Hmm. And I read those few pages over and over and over again before I could even move on. That's how I started investigating the faith. Was the day after I found out about the faith, I got two books. I read one in one sitting, and then I just immersed myself in gleanings. I mean, when I say immersed, I mean it was with me all the time. And it had a gold cover. If you remember the old old gleanings in the 70s, this was 74 because I became a behind 75. It was a regular-sized book with a gold cover. And I had that book tucked under my arm everywhere I went. I never studied like that before. I never felt just compelled to read and read and read and read and just, I would just take a deep breath and sigh and cry and keep reading. That's my, that was my initial process is just to read all the time. How long was your investigation to the point where you identified yourself as a Baha'i? Six months. I found out about the Baha'i faith in December of 74, and I declared three days before my birthday, April 27th in 75. My birthday is May 1st. So what happened between the first time you heard about it to the point six months later that you just had to identify yourself as a Baha'i? What was that transition? Instead of just becoming a Baha'i right away, what happened in those six months that culminated in you identifying yourself as a Baha'i? I felt like I had no choice because I had asked Jesus to guide me. I was clear that this was his guidance, and I was clear this was him speaking through Baha'u'llah. So the, the months that I was reading, I was also involved in singing Baha'i songs a lot on a pretty professional level with, with John. He had a group called Tranquil Dawn. There were several non-Baha'is in the group. In fact, most of the people in the group were not Baha'is. The musicians were not Baha'is. Half of the singers weren't Baha'is. We were singing these wonderful songs. They were like earth, wind, and fire meets the Baha'i faith kind of songs. And I was just totally enamored with the music and with Baha'u'llah. Got to the point where the things that I was singing were the things that I was reading, and they were actually in my heart. And when I sat down with myself and decided, well, what are you going to do? You can't go back to church because you know too much now. Yeah, I skipped a, a, a segment right before I discovered the Baha'i faith. About a year prior, I had taken myself back to um, First AME. That's where I was baptized. And I was asked to be in the choir. And um, I was listening to the sermon. I had started going to church. I wasn't even in the choir. I was just going to church listening to um, 
H. H. Brookins preach. Was, he's a wonderful minister, and I loved his messages. They were moving, and they inspired me, so I went back to church. I went back to church for some guidance. There was something missing. I wanted to figure out what I was supposed to be doing or who I was or what's my life supposed to be about and how does this affect the rest of mankind. I, I had this world vision that I didn't know I had. I was really concerned about how this was going to make an impact on the rest of the world being a better place. So if I stay in this church and I didn't see it, plus I didn't like some of the things that were going on in the choir. You know, I was I was 18 years old and I had been out of school for a couple of years and I just didn't like being around people who weren't serious. You didn't have to be professional, but when it was time to sing, let's do it. Let's make it sound good. You know, I've always been that way and I didn't like flirting and trying to get the boys' attention and singing flat notes and, you know, the jealousies and stuff that goes on with being in choir sometimes. I just said, I'm done. Then a few months after that, that's when I discovered the faith. And then a few months after that, I'm sitting in my room thinking and I'm praying, by the way, in the process, in that six months, I memorized the long obligatory prayer and the tablet of Ahmad and a few other prayers. The reason I memorized them was because I was saying them all the time. So for those uh, folks who aren't familiar with the uh, Baha'i faith, maybe you can explain to them this concept of an obligatory prayer and then also the uh, just a little explanation of what the Tablet of Ahmad is. Okay. The Tablet of Ahmad and the obligatory prayers are very special prayers that Baha'u'llah has revealed for us to say to bring ourselves closer to God. In fact, he says that the first duty of every person is to discover the manifestation of God for this day and to align themselves with him and to follow his commandments. And one of the commandments is to say prayers every day. There are three obligatory prayers that you must say every day. You have a choice of saying one of either of them. And if you say the short one, you say it sometime between noon to sunset. You have that period of time. The medium prayer, um, you say in the morning, in the afternoon, and then in the evening. And in the long obligatory prayer, you can say any time in 24 hours. But it's long. <laughs> I'll explain a little bit about both of these prayers. The reason I chose these two prayers to memorize because I was in such need of spiritual assistance, I knew that I was so needy that I just needed some power. I needed to feel it. And so my friend told me that if you say the Tablet of Ahmad, it'll really make a difference for you. We can talk a little bit more about who Ahmad was, but Baha'u'llah revealed this prayer to Ahmad for the believers that he was um, become, coming in contact with, he would give them this prayer to say. And this was special, a special prayer that he gave to this man that's now for all of us. At the end of the prayer, Baha'u'llah says, Learn well this tablet, O Atmat. Chant it during thy days, and withhold not thyself therefrom. For verily God hath ordained for the one who chanteth the reward of a hundred martyrs and a service in both worlds. 
These favors have we bestowed upon thee as a bounty on our part and a mercy from our presence, that thou mayest be of those who are grateful. Now that part I really could use. Now I didn't have a clue as to what the reward of a hundred martyrs were was, but it was a reward, and it sounded like a good thing. Yeah, even even the next paragraph. If you could read the next paragraph. This is the punchline. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to steal it from you. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the setup. Okay. Now, the punchline is Paulus says, "Should one who is in affliction or grief read this tablet with absolute sincerity." God will dispel his sadness, solve his difficulty, and remove his affliction. Now, I memorized that prayer right away. (laughs) (laughs) When my friend pointed those two paragraphs out to me, he said, God will take away your, your sadness and your difficulties if you say this prayer with sincerity. So I started saying it, and I said it so much that I memorized it. Sometimes I would say it two or three times a day. That's the first prayer that I memorized. And did you notice a difference in your life? My life was already crazy. It turned completely upside down and sideways and dumped me out on the floor. But I had a whole lot now. And for some reason, I felt that I had no alternatives but to declare myself a pie and just work at it. I wasn't able to follow all of the prohibitions and all of the commandments all at once. And I was kicking myself for not being perfect enough to accept this new religion that I had found. But I looked at it like guidance versus no guidance. And I needed the guidance. And I believed it wholeheartedly. Every word, even the stuff that I had questions about, I said, well, God's got to have a good reason for it. I'm not going to worry about it. I did get that we're all responsible. I always felt that I had the ability to understand and to know for myself. You know, I always felt that I could understand and know the truth myself. I would know it myself without uh, a preacher co-signing me or anything else. I, if I asked Jesus to guide me, that he would guide me. I had total faith in that. So when I discovered Baha'u'llah and the relationship between him and Jesus, I was just, like I said, this was just too good to be true. And at the same time, I was terrified. I didn't feel like I was a bad person, but I just felt I was just in so much trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I was in so much trouble that I just had to make that choice. Am I going to stay in trouble by myself, or do I want help? Were it not for Baha'u'llah, I don't know if I'd be here. That's often a question I'll ask my folks that I interview is, where do you think their, their life would have taken them? if they had not run into the Baha'i faith? Well, you know, I I don't believe in suicide for myself, but I sure thought about it. And I don't think that I would be sane right now if I had not discovered the faith, because nothing in my life was making sense. 
Now, Sandy, what was your family's reaction to you becoming a Baha'i? You have to understand, the spiritual guidance in my family mainly came from my mother. She's the one who would take us to church and, you know, teach us right from wrong. And um, my father was kind of on the periphery. We got different kinds of teachings from him. But when I discovered the Baha'i faith, I was in it. I was trying to talk to my mother about it constantly. We had been studying Jehovah's Witnesses as a family, as a possible path, you know, for the whole family. I think uh, another branch of my family is the Jehovah's Witness. And I actually got asked to not continue to study with them. Mm. The person who was training us asked me not to come to class with my family because I asked too many questions. I would argue with him about things. I would say, well, that doesn't make sense to me. What about this? What about this? Okay. I get the the concept, but it just didn't make sense. It didn't seem like God had created another exclusive group that was better than everybody else. The way that I understood Jehovah's Witness, it just didn't feel that it was a path that I was going to take. So my mother was still trying to, she kept trying to uh, sign up as a Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> And every time she got ready to to do whatever it takes to enroll, something would happen, and she wouldn't do it. She was still studying, and I ca- I would come in and start telling her, Mommy, Baha'u'llah says this. Mommy, look at this. Baha'u'llah says that. Mommy, read this. She was just so annoyed <laughs> at a certain point. She says, okay, look, you found a path. I'm going to walk this other path over here until I can't walk it anymore. And then if that doesn't work out, then I'll look at the Baha'i faith. But right now, don't talk to me about it anymore. So I stopped talking to her about it. But I would leave my books all over the house. (laughs) I would leave books all over the house. And she, little pamphlets and little things, and she started reading them. But she didn't tell me. You know, I didn't live at home anymore. And uh, she didn't tell me. And then one day, about three years after I had declared, she called me up out of the clear blue sky and says, I want to go to a fireside. Now, what's that, Sandy? A fireside is a Baha'i meeting that's designed to fellowship and inform people about Baha'u'llah's coming. It's an informal gathering, usually at someone's home. It doesn't necessarily have to be around a fire. It's just a, a term used for informality and um, friendship and fellowship. And that's the spirit in which people share the Baha'i faith. There's no clergy in the Baha'i faith. There's no one, that, one person that has authority over anyone else. So Baha'u'llah has commanded everyone who believes in him to teach his faith. So I took her to a fireside. And she became a Baha'i. My mother and I are the only Baha'is in my immediate family. I think my sister would be a Baha'i. She said if she was going to be a religion, she would be a Baha'i. 
and she allows her children to attend Baha'i classes sometimes. Yeah, I hooked mom up with the church ladies. That's what I called them. There was some older Baha'is, um, Adela Foy Jennings and Mary Carter and um, Manila Lee. Those were like strong Baha'i women. But they were in everything. They they were just really like the church ladies were like the ladies who wear the white and they sit up front and they, they keep everybody in line and they, they know all of the scriptures and they're just like real role models for the black community. That's what those ladies were for me. They just really enfolded me and loved me and were just like grandmothers to me. And so when I took my mother to a fireside, I took her right to Mary Carter. (laughs) (laughs) And she loved Mary Carter and she loved Adela Foy. And my mother is a much better teacher in Baha'i than I, I have ever been. She's just a wonderful woman. I'm honored to be caring for her now. She's uh, now living with me. Uh, she's infirm, but she still can say her prayers. And um, if she can't say them, she tries to mouth them while I say them. I want to uh, save some time in our interview to play some of your music. I went on iTunes. I found your uh, music from a CD that you produced where you sing Baha'i prayers. Yeah, prayers. That's a prayer CD. There's another CD called Rhythm Child that may be on iTunes, but it's it's a, more of a jazz, R&B, funk kind of CD that my husband produced. And there's two songs on that CD that, to me, are like spirit, spirit songs. One of them is called um, Good for Each Other. It's just a love song. But, you know... In this day and time, we don't do a lot of things for love. A lot of people, they hook up with each other for different reasons, for convenience, for money, for physical contact or whatever, but it's not necessarily love and it's not necessarily, like, really spiritual. And um, this song is called Good for Each Other. Uh, And I, I... I, I wrote the lyrics to it, and the music is by Kenny Pollock.
another song on there called Soul Journey or Just Journey and it's uh, kind of a misty smoky kind of feeling it's, it's, uh, it's about dreaming and Baha'u'llah says that when you dream your spirit travels your spirit has experiences that uh, you may see in your actual life later on like deja vu so there's a there's one song that's about that. It's kind of like a we it was it reminded me of a like a Miles for Miles Davis meets Sting kind of thing. <laughs> did you write Journey? Yes, my husband and I did. Okay. And what's your husband's name? His name is Tony St. James Williams. Well, the first one I would say is a prayer that I wrote myself. Okay. It's called What Shall I Be? My arms are useless If they're not holding up the light My arms are useless If they're not holding up the light My arms are useless If they're not holding up the light Oh my Lord, oh my Lord What shall I be? My legs are useless When they're not walking on thy path My legs are useless When they're not walking on thy path No purpose when they don't walk the path of peace. Oh, my Lord, oh, my Lord, what shall I be? My eyes are useless When they can't see the light of God My eyes are blinded When they don't see Baha'u'llah 
Sandy, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to share your story with us and and sharing your ideas. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Sandy Simmons, a professional musician who has a CD called Prayers that you can find on iTunes. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
Refresh and gladden my spirit. Purify my heart. Illumine my powers. I lay all my affairs in thy hand. Thou art my guide and my refuge. I will no longer be sorrowful and grieved. I will be a happy and joyful being. Oh God, I will no longer be full of anxiety. Nor will I let trouble harass me. I will not dwell on the unpleasant things of life. Oh, God, Thou art more friend to me than I am. I dedicate myself to Thee. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.